Hello and welcome to our podcast named Detours. This podcast embraces the unexpected twists and turns that shapes the journeys of our lives that God sends us down. I'm your host and fellow traveler, Mike. I'm here with my beautiful wife, Deb, and we invite you to join us on this exploration of uncharted territories we encounter along the way. So without further ado, let's dive into this episode. everybody welcome to episode number four of detours i am here with my beautiful wife deborah hi everyone and as you know our special guest for season number two is my father steve hello and we are here continuing in our testimony and story this massive detour that my family went through when my little brother Stuart was born with a heart issue and he lived for a little over nine months, uh, only to pass away from just a sheer accident uh, in the hospital after a successful surgery. And Dad, we we kind of concluded the, the bulk of the testimony in the last episode. And when we were talking, uh, you said that the, the next episode should potentially be about all these emotions. Uh, you kind of called them a, a giant wave of emotions that hit all at different times. Uh, but you have 13 that you've written down uh, that we're going to go through today. So at what point do these emotions that you have written down, at what point do they start kicking in? Is this before Stuart passes away? Uh, does it? Do you want to focus mostly after the child passes, uh, or is it anything and everything? It's both. Um, you know, when you first learn of the situation, you certainly have emotions associated with that. When they say to you, your child is born with a heart disease, there's something that goes with that, but then there's also more of a flood of emotion as soon as you're confronted with the death of that child. So some of these will show up in both places. You know, basically what I've done is over the course of the last three or four years, I've asked myself the question, what emotions did I feel? And I've asked others who have lost family members and so forth, what emotions did they feel? And this is kind of a, comp a compilation of all of those various different emotions. So, um, I think we want to talk about some for longer periods than others, but yet you may be listening today with yet another emotion that you feel. And, and you know, I suspect my list of 13 could probably go tenfold. Sure. But I think we'll cover a pretty large swath of the landscape of emotion in the next few minutes. Yeah, and I think what's interesting knowing the list some of these, you know, Deb even overlapped with your, you know, the ending of a marriage and the, the grieving process of the marriage that we talked about in season one. Yeah, uh, I'm sure they're they're different, or or the the origin of the feeling, because the death of a marriage versus the death of a child is drastically different. But it is interesting how much of these. Yes. Uh, just like grief. Grief is on this list of 13 that, that my dad, uh, dad, you've assembled. But that was a big one for you. I think it man. I think grief itself manifests in lots of different life situations. And pain is pain, I always say. Now, there's levels of pain that are more intense than others. But pain affects the body and the brain in the very same way, whether it's a small pain, whether it's a physical pain, or whether it's an emotional or mental pain. The body knows no different. All I know, all that the body knows is I'm in pain and emotions will start to flood. And it looks like your dad has written down many of the things that I think the audience will relate to. Now, dad, you're in the middle of writing a book or, or should I say nearing the end of it, but the part of the book that hasn't been written, you, you want to do one chapter on emotions and it's the 13 that we're going to talk about today. But this has proven to be something that's somewhat difficult to articulate for you. Has it, has it not been? It's, it's something I can articulate what those emotions are. What is more difficult is to say, what's the antidote 
to some of these emotions? Well, you know, what, what, how do we handle some of these things? Because some of them are very difficult. And, you know, the, the grieving process is different for each of us. Um, the, the, the duration of grief really is defined by me. Mm-hmm. What I would tell you is I've seen people that have chosen to grieve forever in a big way. Um, they didn't want to let go. I'm not so sure that's what God wants from us. I feel God wants us to trust in him and to let go of some of these things. But as we talk today, I'll talk about some some conversations I've had with people where, you know, they by their own actions have said, I just want to grieve over this and, and I don't want to let go of it. And boy, it makes for an awfully miserable life. Yeah, it does manifest in, in so many unique ways. Um, so why don't we start at the top of your list? The very first thing on your list is shock. I mean, if, if you haven't lost a child, you can only imagine the shock that happens when, you know, when you're running in the hospital and that doctor gives you the stop sign, the shock that just starts setting in. It's got to be the worst kind of shock. Well, I, I would tell you as well, when you have a healthy baby born and they walk in the room and say, Mr. Snyder, Mrs. Snyder, we're taking your baby to another hospital because he has some sort of heart disease or, gee, you know, Mr. So-and-so, your son has cancer. Shock doesn't necessarily come because of the death of the child. Shock comes because you have a piece of information to process that you weren't expecting. And so it makes it more difficult. It's the, oh, you're you're about to go on a detour receiving of that news. Exactly right. I think shock's an amazing way that God gives us to endure. Uh, I think the body goes into shock for lots of different uh, occasions where if you were to feel the brunt of it at that moment, it would be it would be unbearable. I think shock actually is a is a gift initially from God so that we can endure. I don't know. That's just my take on it. Like you probably, if you didn't feel shock, you wouldn't have had the ability to probably do the things necessary to get the funeral going and to get all the arrangements done. It's almost that opportunity where you're, and I'm, I'm, I probably shouldn't speak for you, but I'm trying to put myself in your shoes that you know, there's these necessary things that happen in death that have to be taken care of. And if you were feeling everything all at once, you, it would be probably debilitating to get those things accomplished. Sometimes you do feel them all at once. And, and just the, 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 the drive for survival in the adrenaline rush that you get is what puts you through the whole situation. Um, but... There's so many events in our life that we encounter that we just aren't prepared for. And I remember when my father passed away. My father was a totally what I thought to be healthy man. I got a call at 6 in the morning from my mother saying, you're not going to believe this. Your father's dead. And I'm like, you know, that was shock at, you know, at its very best. And, you know, sometimes you have time to prepare for an event. This, you know, someone has cancer and they die, you still feel shock. You know, you, you, you think you're ready for this and you've had time to prepare for it, but you still don't. And shock is one of those things that, you know, as you process it, you really have to get what, what you're trying to do is get comfortable because it's not going to go away. The death of your child is not changing. It's final. But the, to recover from the shock you have to get to a point where you accept it and it's no longer shocking to you. You then move in maybe into other phases of what we'll call maybe the grieving process. Yeah. What's interesting, you know, diagnosing Stuart with a a heart disease, there was no shock to God, right? That that's where I think shock is one of those things that we as as humans we have to process, and part of helping that process is going to God, who wasn't surprised by this, and just going, okay, God, 
what are you doing here? You've asked me to go down a path that I don't want to go down, but you're in the process of transitioning me into an image closer to your son. What is this detour doing? What, what are you trying to accomplish? If you can keep that kind of attitude in the, in the hardest of trials, you're doing something right because that's a difficult thing to do. Um, but yeah, always keep in mind that, that God's not shocked by anything that happens. Uh, I don't know. We that, are. I don't know that any of these emotions really. I know God has sadness at times, but most of these are just human emotions. And I think that, you know, we, we all process them differently. I can't give you the prescription to get you through your shock. And I think the only answer is you have to pray and say, God, you got to help me with this. Yeah, one, one of the emotions that you have written down that I think God completely understands is the next one on the list, loneliness. I think that being on the cross was, was a very lonely mm-hmm. place to be because Absolutely. only he could do that. Yep. Uh, he was abandoned by the disciples. I mean, there, there's so many. That, that's a very long list on that one for God. So how do you take loneliness to God? Because he definitely can empathize. He empathizes with that one big time. Yeah. And, you know, it loneliness is it, it affected me a couple different ways. I had two couple different kinds of loneliness. The first one was when we came home from the hospital after Seward had passed away and we laid down on the bed together. And despite the fact that Sandra was right next to me, I felt like I was in total isolation. Um, I, I just felt like I had been totally emptied out of all emotion. You know, someone had opened the drain and let it all come out. And I was just there by myself. The second loneliness that you get is more, and I would imagine this for people that have, let's say, been married for some long period of time and their spouse passes away. And they've been so accustomed to having that spouse there to support and for, you know, for them to support, for the the other person to support them. And you go, I, I put this in my mother's case. My mother's like, how am I going to make this without my husband here? I, I don't know that I can make that. So you got two different kinds of loneliness. I would say mine was more the first one, which was I felt so alone. But I never worried I didn't have somebody with me to go through it. Others would certainly have that. Did you have, um, did you talk with Sandra about these feelings? Oh, yeah. You know, you, you talk about the, and, the good news is it's really therapeutic to talk about this situation with one another and with close friends. We had our friends Bob and Dawn, and, you know, they're Christian friends, and we could sit and talk to them and talk about how we felt and really be open about it. You know, it's it's hard to discuss this with a total stranger, but... Um, yeah, we, we certainly talked a lot about it. And, you know, the one thing I would say is I was really proud after Stuart passed away that we, I thought, for quite a long period of time, did a really good job of talking about it. And I, I would say to the people listening today, if you have a friend or a family member or something that has lost a loved one, one of the biggest worries that you have is bringing that up in a conversation. Oh, I don't want to talk about the loss of their baby because I don't want to bring up bad feelings. At least in my case, and I think I speak for Sandra as well, I wanted to talk about it. You know, it felt good to talk about it. And the fact that people tried to dance around the issue or avoid the issue was almost more hurtful than if they would have just said, how are you guys doing? Yeah. They were more uncomfortable with their own uncomfortability. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I can say that that's, I have a coworker that just lost a son and he hasn't come back into work yet. And I had that feeling like, oh gosh, what do I, I just, I want to hug him, you know, I don't know him very well, so I don't know if that's appropriate, but just 
the instant feeling of, oh, this is going to be uncomfortable. And I think that's a very human reaction, even though, again, everyone dies and it's something everyone's going to have to talk about or deal with at some point in life. Yep. Yeah. So it almost feels worse not to have somebody talk about, like Mike said, the elephant in the room. It's, it's so important to talk about it. We talked about this in one of the earlier episodes, but... A few weeks after Stuart passed away, his cardiologist called up and said, I want you guys to come where I want to talk to you. And he sat there and said, listen, you guys have to be willing to talk this over with each other because if you don't, you're going to find yourself in a divorce court because, you know, if you if you can't talk to yourself, to yourselves, you might talk to someone else and the other person feels really alone. And so... You have to address that. And we, we did it with our eyes wide open. And, and I honestly thought we did a pretty good job of that because it, it does feel good. You know, it's not always just talking about the bad news, but do you remember when we took Stuart to Disney World? Do you remember when he, how he reacted when he saw Mickey Mouse? Those are fond memories that you, you don't want to give up. And, I, you know, I, I go to friends' houses that have lost a parent and, or I go to a, a, a memorial service or a funeral service, and you see the pictures of all these great occasions, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you remember when dad caught that fish? Or do you remember when mom bought that really cool dress for that occasion and how proud she was of it? Those are fun things that, that put good feelings back in your, your heart instead of all the terrible things. Yeah, it's it's honorable to talk about those things and to cherish the time that you had. For sure. Yep. And so uh, that kind of brings us down to uh, some of the more difficult emotions to talk through. So let's talk through denial. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I, I would say that Everybody naturally says, why did this happen to me? Why, why me? I, I'm a good guy. I shouldn't have lost this person in my life. What did I do wrong? Or I refuse to accept this. You can't heal from this until you accept it. You have to say, this happened, it's real, and I'm going to accept it. And I said I would tell a story I, I heard of a pastor and his wife. I was working at the Ronald McDonald House. And I was meeting with a couple there, and they were telling me of their pastor and his wife. They had lost a seven-year-old son through some sort of situation. I don't remember what it was. And seven years later, the mother continued to set a place at the dinner table for that child that had passed away. Well, in some ways, I think that's denial. You're, you're refusing to give up the fact that that child is gone. And, and as long as you leave that empty place at the dinner table, you can't get past it. You, you know, I, I hear the stories of people saying, after he died, I never went in his room. I closed the door and I just left it that way. That's, that's not going to help at all. Really not going to help. Yeah, there's even people that we follow on Facebook that have sick children or children that have died that still even go, there's one lady in particular that still literally goes to the graveside of their child every single day. I think it's on their lunch hour and reads a story to their child. And I understand that, that grieving is different for every person. Um, and, and it's going to take a different length of time for every person. But at some point, you do have to, just like King David, he got up, he went in and, and took a shower, ate food, and worshipped. And, and you have to have that turning point moment. And, and everyone needs to self-reflect and, and, and go, this grieving, is it still healthy for me? Uh, and, and that can be a tough, tough thing to do, uh, tough, tough self-analysis there. And no amount of someone else saying you need to move past this is ever going to be helpful. It has to be a position in their heart that says, I'm ready to not set that table. I'm ready not to go to the grave and read that 
story because someone else going, well, I went through this and it took me this amount of time or someone else maybe saying, wow, you're still doing that. None of that will ever be helpful. It always has to come from that place of readiness and hopefully that person gets there. Hopefully somebody in their life encourages that I'll walk through you when you don't set the table. I'll, I'll be with you on the day you don't read that story at the gravesite. Not you should, but when you do, I will be present. Yep. Yeah, it's it's a tough situation. Uh, you know, denial, it's, it, it's the first step in AA, right? Yeah. I'm here, I'm Mike Snyder, and I'm an alcoholic. That's the very first step is admitting. And so this can be a very difficult step for people to take. Let the audience know he's not an alcoholic. Not not <laughs> as of right now, no. I'm not. That is, that is true. Um, but now that, that can lead to, uh, denial can lead to a lot of things. And the next item on the list is anger. Uh, this is something that y- you definitely see uh, denial manifesting itself as anger. Uh, you see a lot of different forms of it. So how how did you combat this? What did it look like in, in you guys with Stuart? I don't think I ever had anger. Um, that's one I left behind, but it's certainly one that I've certainly seen a lot of. Well, it's on your list of things you felt. You didn't well, feel any anger? Not a lot, no. I, w- w- I put it on my list of things that I've either felt myself or I know of others that felt it. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've seen Christians say, God, I can't believe you took my child. If you love me, I've dedicated my life to you. How could you take my child and be angry and live with that anger for long periods of time, if not for the rest of their lives? Uh, Anger is one of those things that when you embrace it it can it can get stuck inside of you and i think it becomes a cancer inside that not only affects you in that situation but that anger begins to manifest itself in many different ways so that it might be the way you treat other people might be the way you treat your children um anger is so difficult and i look at america today i see tremendous amounts of anger you know, you, you, all you got to do is turn on the news on any given day and you see all kinds of anger. Social pro- media. Protesting. Yeah. yeah. Facebook is more anger than it is positivity. Social, yeah. You know? It's incredible. I, 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 I laugh because I saw somebody the other day. You know, here we are in, in South Florida. You know, we're close to the Space Center. And I saw someone post under, hey, I'm coming. You know, I live in South Florida. Where's the best place for me to go watch a launch? And people were lacerating this person going, well, if you live in South Florida, you should already know that. What's your problem? Oh, boy. You know, and it's like. Nobody has time for that. Can't you just be nice and say, here's my favorite spot? Yeah. But they don't. Or look at the restaurant conversations about, you know, hey, I had dinner at this place last night. It was excellent. Well, I went there two weeks ago, and the service was terrible, and the food was cold, and we're really a society filled with anger right now. Well, and I often say, and and from my own experience, I speak this that anger is a secondary emotion. It's a it's a cover. It's it's the protective armor of what you're really feeling inside, whether it's fear or pain or deep sadness or rejection or abandonment, whatever emotions you're trying to cover up, anger is one of those things that um, people often use to avoid feeling the deeper feelings because anger is easy to pull up. Anger, I mean, anger is really easy to pull up where it's hard to talk about your sadness. It's hard to talk about your pain. And so I think people use anger as a cover. I know that I did for many, many, many years. So anger is, is, yeah, anger is something that manifests in, in almost virtually everyone in every situation that you always have to, to constantly monitor. Working for the church, the next item on the list 
is also extremely common. It's one of the top searched items on the church website, which is depression. People are, are, are anxiety and depression are interchangeable almost these days. And it, it is the number one search for term on, on Calvary Chapel's website. People need to know how to deal with depression, what, what it looks like. There, there's a lot of people after COVID that are, are suffering from depression. So what is it like when you lose a child and that wave hits? Mm. It, it, it's easy to, to just become really listless, I think, is the word I would use. You know, you, you get to a point where nothing matters. The good news for me is I, I've, my glass is always half full. I, I, I live a life that's always half full. During this whole thing, I might go into a little bit of depression for a day or two, but the thing that always motivated me was I have another child that I have to raise, and I can't allow any of these emotions to take me down to a point where it affects the way I father my other son. And so, um, you know, I worked really hard to, to avoid it, but Deb, I got to believe you can talk more about, you know, the depression side of things because I think you probably had some serious bouts with it at times. Oh yeah, I still do. Uh, I still deal with, um, episodes of depression and, um, it's something that I think the Christian community doesn't always <clears throat> look upon. As, I, I think there's a little bit of a, a cloud of shame around depression. I know that there are times where people will put on a happy face when they walk into a church because they feel like they have to, because people are uncomfortable with others' emotions. And I know... I could even say at times I've had smiling depression where everything looks fine on the surface because I'm in survival mode, but inside I'm, I'm dying. And um, I think that when you talk about it with someone you trust and someone that isn't going to judge you for not being where you're supposed to, and I'm using an air quote here, <laughs> where you're supposed to be, but where you actually are, it helps to alleviate the depression and I also think counseling is is a beautiful way to be able to have an objective viewpoint from someone who uh, cares and someone that's going to give you some insight that you can't see when you're depressed. Sometimes you're blinded by your depression. I would agree with that. And depression is one where if you don't suffer from it and you're around someone that does, you got to be real careful what you say to that person. You know, you, you can say some pretty insensitive things to someone that's suffering from depression. Like, hey, you, you, what are you so depressed about? Look at your life. It's, yeah. it's a, you know, I don't know that anyone would necessarily say that to someone that lost a child, but th there probably is uh, some pretty insensitive things that can be said out there um, around depression. So just one that you got to be super careful with. I think depression is probably more prevalent in our society today than it was back 40 years ago. You know, I, I, I'm a sales manager and I have a, a team of salespeople. And as we were going through COVID, um, I would do Zoom calls where we would get all the team together just to talk. And at one point, one of the team members said, I found it really important for me to go get counseling right now. And it opened up the floodgates because people then said, well, me too. And it was amazing the number of people on the team that felt that way. Yeah, when um, someone's willing to be vulnerable, it gives yeah, you permission he, he, to be vulnerable. He was totally vulnerable. And he said, you know, he said, my wife and I are going to counseling because, you know, we're, because we're so close and confined areas we're getting on each other's nerves and, and life is more challenging that way. I think COVID taught us a lot about depression. I, I think we all in one shape or form were depressed because we couldn't get out and do the things we normally wanted to do. Oh, and yeah. we couldn't take our vacations and we couldn't get on airplanes without a mask and all. And I think it affected all of us in one way or another. 
Yeah, Calvary Chapel, our biblical counseling when COVID hit, our biblical counseling and marriage counseling went up 300%. Wow. In, in I think it was like a 90-day period or something like that after COVID, simply because, yeah, people were spending a lot more time with one another and it broke all these routines. Yeah. Like almost virtually every routine that you had was broken, right? The routine of getting your kids ready in the morning because you had to take them to school. And then, you know, you would go into your office and then on the way home, you would hit the gym. Well, now you're not sending the kids away. Now you're both working remotely from home and you can't go to the gym. So and you're, you're dealing with kids who are going to online school and just, yeah. And you got to feed your kids for lunch where you never did before. And now all of a sudden, yeah, you're around one another 24-7. And, you know, Deb, you and I had a very interesting situation. We literally got married in April of 2020, right when COVID was hitting. So we had a unique start to our marriage. Really? We got to spend a lot of intimate time together for a long time to get to know one another on uh, you know on a much deeper level, but the, sure. the a lot of people really struggled through that time uh, in their marriage. So uh, it it can manifest in in a lot of different ways. It, I I think something that kind of goes along with with that this is the word fear. You know, fear can manifest itself a couple of ways. When someone says to you, your child has heart disease or your child has cancer, the, imme- the immediate reaction is fear because you say, wow, what could happen here? But in the case of COVID, the fear was, wow, there's this disease out there. We could all get it and die. And fear was being promoted. It was. So it was being bombarded. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, fear is one of those things... None of us like fear. Um, fear is a motivator. And, it is. You know, well, not always for the good. <laughs> you always hear about foxhole religion, about the soldier that's in a foxhole and the bullets are flying over his head. The good news is, though, that that fear typically prompts someone, dear Lord, watch over me. Right. Which is pretty cool because that, that is the antidote to fear is if you know God, you're in God's protection, you don't have to be afraid. And you know what? If you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you do end up taking a bullet, the good news is you're in eternity forever with Jesus and there is no fear. Yep. Yeah. Fearfully and wonderfully made so it can be used for good or for bad. Yep. You know. Um, so on to the next item on the list. This is one that Deb and I talked through uh, in pretty good extent in season one. So we may not send, spend as much time on it today, but uh, the next emotion on your list is grief. Uh, as we've all mentioned, you know, grieving takes, it's a process. It takes different amounts of time. So is there anything that you want to kind of add? Because I know we've kind of peppered it in already especially in season one, but grief definitely hits when a, when a child dies on a, on a different level. The problem with grief is there's no owner's manual that anyone gives you. Isn't that the truth? That says, here's how to deal with grief. You know, some people have a pity party and they just say, oh, I'm going to just be sad and grieve forever. While, you know, it, it really helps to have some sort of, helper there to say, here's the map on how to get out of this, this maze in life that you're living in, because it's truly a maze. And all I would say is, you know, grief is one of those things that you got to decide for yourself. And one of the things that kept me moving all the time was I always came back to the very basic statement that said, I still have a son to raise. Mm -hmm. I think it would have been much harder if if this had happened to Michael and I had no other children and I wouldn't have anything left to hang my hat on. I might have reacted differently, but I'm also a very goal-oriented person. And so when I set a goal for myself, which is I'm going to try to be a positive father and take good care of my, my child, even if he's the only one I got, I manage myself out of a lot of these, but I see people that can't do that. And I think grief hits 
in more than just the moments that you bury a child or the moment you end a divorce or the moment you end something, I think it's the grieving process, and I've said it in season one, is you're grieving what could have been. You're grieving those baseball games that you don't get to have with uh, Stuart, or you're grieving his high school graduation. There's a process of grief that isn't just the present moment and the pain you feel, but I think there is something very poignant about grieving the what could have been. I think it's actually very healthy to process through. I am grieving that loss of I'm not going to get to see his wedding. I'm not going to get to go to, um, you know, our first fishing trip. And I think that help, well, from my experience, grieving stuff that hadn't happened, that could have been, was incredibly therapeutic for me. Mm-hmm. And again, I haven't lost a child, thank God. But, you know, grief in other ways, um, it's been a process of um, grieving the what could have been. Do you feel like you had any of that experience? Oh, sure. Grief? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, to, to kind of take it to the, the next one, sadness is normal. Sadness is sort of the... I think the preliminary step that you take before you get into things like um, depression or, you know, it, 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 you can't help but be sad. Yeah. No one rejoices when, I mean, maybe we should rejoice when a, a Christian gets saved or gets passes away because we know they're in heaven, but we don't live that way. We, we constantly are facing, you know, we're feeling for ourselves. Yes. And that's that's the problem with all of this. The funeral service and all these emotions are for us, not for the person that's gone. Yes. It's really, you know, I think the funeral service was created to try to help deal with the grief and the and, and the sadness and, and those kind of things. It's just you, you, you wake up one day and you say, you know, the, the first day that, that Stuart was gone, the bassinet was still at the foot of the bed and you want to wake up and look and see if he's still okay, you know? Mm. And that sadness really can beat you down um, because it's it's really hard to deal with it. It's not something you can just snap your fingers and make it go away. And there's nothing anybody can say to you that's going to make you feel any better. Can't happen. Um, So... You know, sadness is really, I think, a real challenge. Yep, and and totally understandable too. You know, it, it's again when you lose a child, it, it, you and your significant other are the only two that are capable of walking down that. No matter who who you surround yourself with, it's definitely your detour. Yep, that you're going down. Um, so it's 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 a tricky one. Um, and, and so let's move on to the next uh, emotion that you have written down, which is pain. What do you want to say about pain on this one? Well, I think we need to make one comment here, and that is a lot of these overlap one another. It might be another word to describe something we've already talked about. I mean, to me, in some cases, pain and sadness are very, very similar. But yet pain... Anger and pain are similar. I think pain is the underlying emotion to almost everything you have on your list. Yep. Yeah, it, it, you know, if you think about if I cut my arm with a saw, I have pain. Pain is cutting your heart. You know, it's, (laughs) it's open heart surgery that's now taken something that was inside your heart and ripped it out of there and... It's, it is a physical feeling, to be sure. It's not just an emotion. It's a physical feeling. Oh, yeah. Your body manifests pain in lots of different ways. Yeah, absolutely, it does. And, um, you know, I, I'm no scientist. I don't, you know, I know that when you cut yourself, the, you know, the white blood cells and that surround that area to keep it from infection, all that kind of stuff. With pain, you need to surround yourself with, friends and family that will protect you from that infection. And if, if you choose to isolate yourself, there's so many of these that cannot be cured just by yourself. 
And as as you look at this, I pray that everybody who's listening to this never loses a child. But my message to you is, if you have a friend or family member that does, you have a real opportunity to make a difference in that person's life. You, you can easily um, take steps to help heal that person, regardless of what these emotions are. Yep, absolutely. And now we want to get to an emotion that, that I, I think if I went through the death of a child would be one that I experience very tangibly, which is emptiness. Filling that, you know, there, there's a Stuart size hole in your heart when he passes. And yeah, I've heard you mention, and it, it's not the greatest visual, but it is legit. It is true that you feel like a toilet flushed and never oh, refilled. <laughs> you know, that's it. I used, I've used that for years. And, and, and you do have that sense of emptiness when a child leaves, you know, when, when a sick child passes away. Now, the key that we'll talk about in a different episode is part of this is you got to fill it with something. Right. And, and we've talked about our involvement in the Ronald McDonald House and some other things. We're going to get to that in a different episode. But emptiness, you've seen a lot of people struggle with emptiness. Have you not? I have for sure. Yeah. Do you think you find that more in, do you see it manifest different in women than men? Because as a woman, I've, I've had this child growing in me. This child is a physical part of my body, a part of me that's no longer there. Do you think women t- get hit a little harder in that respect? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think we as men can comprehend the emotional impact that the loss of a child has on the mother. You know, I, I, I've said that for years. You know, the fact that you carry this child in your body for nine months and, and you feel this responsibility that, you know, that's why Sandra was up every few minutes checking to see if Stuart was still breathing. That's That's part of what she, that's motherhood, if you will. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think I'm qualified to answer the question when you say, is it more significant for women than it is for men? My answer would be, I got to believe it is. I think But so. I think Deb can validate the fact that it's way more um, impactful to a woman than it is to a man because we don't have the same... Number, uh, you don't have whatever the same you want to call emotions, it. Thank number you. one. The same emotion, but I, I want to use the word, this the same creative, you know, I created this child. He's he's in me. I feel every kick, every yeah. hiccup, and, every And we hurt. don't have that. So even at the point in time when that child is born, we don't have the same connection. Connection's mm-hmm. a good word. When you're born, you have an umbilical cord that runs to your mother. And even though they cut that cord... You still, for the your entire life, have that connection to Absolutely. your mother. Absolutely. You know, when my son hurts, I hurt. When he's in pain, I'm in pain. I there's something so tangible when I see my child hurting. It's just, oh, it's gut wrenching in a way. Or if I see him going down a path where I'm like, ooh, please protect him, Lord. Like that kind of tangible connection to this this living soul that grew in me yeah. is just, it's unexplainable, I think, to a man. And I do say that with the utmost respect to fathers, but there is something very unique about that relationship that I don't know that a man can completely understand from our viewpoint, even though you have a bond with your, your child in a way that I may not understand. Well, just as I said to you that when someone comes up to you at the funeral and says, I know how you must feel, Ugh. and they've never experienced it, I think I would be equally guilty if I said to Deb, oh, I know how you as a mother must feel. I don't know that feeling because I'm not a mother, and you can't know any feeling 
that you haven't lived yourself. Right. Yeah, and I don't know who said it. I'm certainly not the first to, to say this, but it's, you know, a, a, a man doesn't become a father until the day the child is born, where a mother becomes a mother the instant she knows. And, and it's true. It, yeah. It's absolutely true. And so emptiness probably does manifest different for women, for, for mothers, than it does for fathers, at least with the loss of a child anyway. Yeah. Um, and you said something interesting about you can't, you can't possibly know how it feels unless you walk that road, and empathy is on that. And I think that's very important for people to understand when you literally put yourself in someone's shoes, but you haven't walked the experience, you're never going to truly have the amount of compassion required to, not that you can't be compassionate, but empathy is, I feel what you feel because I've been there, brother. I've been there, sister. I've walked this journey with you. And so when I deal with people who have walked a similar story to me, there is immense empathy, empathy because I know exactly what that feeling feels like. And I'm sure that's what made your time at Ronald McDonald House so impactful is because you're, you're the voice on the other side going, I know how you feel. I am here with you. I know your pain. And you can honestly say that. Yeah. I, I would tell you that you know, at, at the end of the day, when I think of when I think of empathy, I, I will share a part of my life that I've shared with very few. Michael knows about it, but not many do. I was flying home on a plane from Atlanta one evening, and I just finished reading a, a, a book, um, and it, it it basically said, you know, sometimes we put limits on God. And so I was praying, God, you know, I don't want to put any limitations on you. And I, I, he spoke to me in, in my spirit and said, I want you to take out a piece of paper. He said, I'm going, to, we're going to, I'm going to give you some things. I want you to write them down. And I want you to write them down because at the end of this, we're going to make a covenant together, and you're going to sign it, and it will be a covenant between you and I. And part of what he told me during that conversation is he said, one of the things, one of the reasons, and it wasn't the only reason, I'm sure, but he said, one of the reasons that you've, you're uniquely positioned to deal with people that have lost a child is because you've experienced it. And that's something that is so critical to you to give you credibility and and that's kind of when he started telling me, I want you to write a book. And I'm like, Lord, I'm not an author. There's no way I can write a book. And he said to me, people, and I started looking on Amazon. You'll find very few books that talk about how to deal with the death of a child on Amazon. And I can remember I, I called Michael one night. And I, I was having a real battle. I'm like, I can't come up with a title. And he very quickly said, well, I have the title for you. And that was the day that the, the, the founding of the word detours came about. He said, Dad, your book should be about the detours that you and Mom had to go through in life to prepare yourselves. And, you know, you were going down one way, and God said, no, turn left here. No, now turn right. Now make a U-turn. And he said, that's the perfect name. I thought, you're right. Hmm. And obviously, this podcast is tied around the name detours because it's not just the loss of a child that creates a detour for all of us. There are many detours that you guys have talked about some already, and there'll be many more to talk about. But in my situation, God said to me, I chose you to do this ministry to families with sick children because you have credibility. And I've taken it on as a serious situation, um, and I'm really pleased to be a part of this podcast because I know there are people out there today that have lost a loved one, and they're angry with God, or they're, they're depressed, or whatever. If we can just help one person with this podcast. Amen. That's my we've, hope. We've done something really good. My hope is that if you have a friend that 
lost a child and you're listening to this today, please forward these podcasts to these people. They need to hear the things we're talking about today because they're really important. Yeah, as a matter of fact, on detours.life, that is our website. If you go to detours.life, there is a contact form on that website. If there's a person that needs prayer, if there is something that that needs to be talked about, uh, by all means, contact us. Um, We'd be happy to pray for you. Yeah, that that that's an honor. Because um, one of the things you know, we we've talked about how going through it makes you unique to be able to talk to someone that is going through it. What we also have to be careful about is that if you're going through it and people that haven't gone through it approach you to try and help you, don't push that away just because they haven't gone through it. There are too many times where I see people saying, there's no possible way you can relate with me. And and they literally push people away and they push people away just trying to help, simply bringing food or, or, or trying to come and pray. You can't possibly pray to the depths that I pray because you haven't lost a child. You have to be very careful of that, too. That, that, that's not what we're saying. Isolation um, from people that are reaching out to you is not the answer here with empathy. You can, you can empathize uh, with people having not lost a child, uh, but there is just that you know, there, there is that different level um, of, of empathy when someone has and when they've gone through the same thing that you have. That's why you have something like cancer care. That's a support group that Calvary offers. Cancer care, grief share. There's so many different support groups and they're all, you know, very particular about who they kind of cater to, if you will. Um, because they want people that have all gone through very similar circumstances there together supporting one another. Um, so, but uh, also don't forget that, that it, it, people can start turning away help just because someone hasn't lost a child doesn't mean they're not helpful, doesn't mean they're not reaching out to you and they have things that are very valuable to say. Um, so uh, let's move on to the next one, which is kind of a big one, especially Deb for, for the moms uh, out there, which is guilt. Oh yeah. I talked about mom guilt a couple episodes ago. I think there's something (laughs) I, it has a title. I don't, I'm sure other moms know the title. It's the mom guilt. Um, I think we all feel guilt, but there's something very unique about just this constant. And I think it's the processing of the brain for women. Like I mentioned, like we're multitasking through our entire life. And when something's unresolved, that I need a resolution is happening in the back of your brain while a million other things are happening. And so when you don't get an answer or you're waiting on an answer, it doesn't just shut off. And I think that's where the guilt kind of comes in is you're always holding this heavy package of I don't have an answer to why this happened or I don't have a solution, and it's just opened. It's an open window on a computer, and it's running in the background constantly. And so guilt is just, it's, it's a hard emotion. I, I would tell you that guilt is the one of all of these that I live with every day. Wow. And it, 42 years later, I still live with it. Now, you know, for, for Sandra, I'm sure the question was, what did I do during pregnancy that caused this to happen? And even though the doctor said to her, this is nothing hereditary, you know, there's 1,100 babies a year in the U.S. born with this, and that we can find no trace of hereditary. There's a guilt that goes with that, even though they'll tell you there's not. But for me, the guilt was totally different. And it's, I was chasing the corporate ladder, I was doing everything I could because I had been earmarked as somebody they wanted to make like the president of a company. And I had the guy that was my guardian angel in the company, you you know, telling people, hey, Steve Snyder's the next guy. And so I was 
traveling all the time, trying to do everything I could to get that job. And the day Stuart died, I realized that I was traveling probably 75% of my life, or during 75% of Stuart's life, I missed 75% of that life because that was more important to me. And one thing that happens when you go through this, you try to reorder your priorities. Now, I will tell you, I have a, a team of salespeople that work for me today that I would tell you are probably a little tired of hearing from me. But every so often, I have to get up on my soapbox and I have to say, look, make sure your work-life balance is in the right order. Mm -hmm. If you've got a child playing soccer this afternoon at 4 o'clock, you have my permission to go to that soccer game. I don't care. I want you at that soccer game because I want you to share in the life of your child. And, oh, I can't tell you, you know, it, it comes out about every three months, and I'm sure they sit there and go, okay, here it comes again. But I'm so committed to it because I still sit here and live with it saying, wow, if I'd have just been home, but nine months wasn't very long, I missed a lot of it. Oh, and God. And so, you know, we've talked about all these different emotions, but guilt is the one that I can sit here and tell you. And, you know, I, I have a good friend who's, whose son took his own life in college. And he says to me every day, I still look back and say, I should have seen the warning signs and I didn't see it. And he lives with that guilt every single day. And it's something that no matter how hard you try, out of all these emotions, you can you can get yourself out of depression. But you can't resolve guilt. Mm. Once Once it's been done, you can't rewind the tape and play it over again. And so many of these emotions that we're talking through are things that in prayer should be brought to the cross and laid there and left. And guilt is the one that I think most people say that prayer and they leave it at the cross and then then they pick it right back up and put it back on their shoulder again as they walk away after prayer is over. Guilt is that one that for some reason we just pick it right back up again. I could have. I should have. Right. If I can speak into that, the guilt and conviction are so very different. And I do think like guilt is something from the enemy to shame us because God isn't shaming us. Conviction is something that comes from, in your example, I'm now convicted to make sure that my my coworkers or my um, you know people that work for me understand this is the life lesson I've gleaned and I'm convicted to to share that with them where guilt is something that the enemy does to shame us and keep us isolated and keep us feeling like we're not good enough. And, and God doesn't use guilt. God uses conviction at time, holy conviction to say, okay, this is what we've learned from this son or daughter. But guilt, I think is really from the pit, honestly. It, it truly is. And, you know, like I said, you can't resolve it. It, you know, I, I fully expect that I will go to my grave with guilt saying I could have been a better father. I and think you can allow God to forgive that part of your heart. I can. I, I would agree with you. But the question is, God may have forgiven me, but you can I forgive myself? You. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I haven't. I mean, I use it today as as motivation for my people. And I say to them all the time, I don't want you to make the same mistake that I make. You know, I made it. I can't fix it anymore. But understand something. The fact that you're a salesperson, your goal in life is not to say on your tombstone, he made, quota 100% of his hmm. years that he worked. Your goal is to say he was a great dad and all those kinds of things. That is so important. And I, I wish more bosses out there would feel that way or speak that way to their workers. I think that that really produces community within your workplace. I have, I have a very dear friend of mine that I work with who's also more than just a, a co-worker. He's a friend. 
and very talented young man, I, I will say. And he has three children, two of which are at high school age. One is a, a really fine softball catcher. The other is a really fine golfer. And he was offered a position with another company a few months ago that was substantially more money than he's making now. And um, they wanted him to relocate to California. And he talked to me about it. And he said, I really would like this because it's a lot of money. But I've heard you say too many times I should support my family. He said, I can't take this job now because I know I won't be able to go see my kid play softball or watch him play golf. So I'm going to forgive the opportunity and, 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 and reject it wow. in order to give my best to my kids. And I said, you got it. Do you see that's a legacy you're building from you're, your oh, own pain? You bet. And I, I just think, wow, you're changing the lives of someone else's family just by the advice you've given and the things that you've learned in your suffering. Yeah. That's a beautiful legacy. I heard it I heard a video the other day from Tiger Woods. And he was telling the story, I never heard this before, that his mother and father took out a second mortgage on their house so that they would have enough money to get him the golf lessons he needed. And now look what that's turned into. Now, that's hmm. not necessarily, you know, a, a, it's not a great story, Christian but. story or anything like that. <laughs> but the point of it is, when you take on the responsibility of a child, you have one responsibility, and that is to make sure that kid makes it to heaven. Amen. If, if you forget everything else, that's okay. Do they have to be the... You know, the the top-ranked golfer in the United States? Nope, you don't. But number one, I want my kids to love me, and I, lo and I want them to know I love them. But more importantly, we have to make sure that we keep those kids on a path that they say, you know what, Dad, if nothing else, you told me I need to go to church. And I remember when, when Michael was going through lots of tough times, lots of them. He said, Dad, what do I do? I said, go to the beach and pray. And he did that. And it took a while to be sure, but at the end of the day, he did it. And, and it's made a difference, and he, he's a whole different person now. And those are the kinds of things that we as parents have to remember. Our responsibility first is to make sure our kids make it through the door of heaven. If nothing else happens, they can be, you know, whatever job, you may want them to be a doctor, and they turned out to be a trash collector. But, you know, so what? Right. Doesn't matter. They made it through the, the pearly gates and said, come right in. Well done, good and faithful servant. Beautiful thing to hear. So, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I, I, I heard, I think it was a pastor teaching a sermon um, who basically said he was describing hell. And he said, I want you to think about what's, what's it like to have absolutely no hope. It's void of hope. You're burning. Your skin is just crawling. It stinks. You can't get out. You can't escape, and you, the reality of infinite time in this place has hit you. There's nothing you can do except cry out. And when you cry out, the only voice that returns is your child because they're there with you. Wow. And if you don't use that as a motivation you know, so many times in the Bible, hell is talked about much more frequently than heaven is. And that is, that, that, that's, again, that, that's the hope that Christianity offers is, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Stuart is in heaven. And we keep saying that because it is so critical to hang your head on. But that hope and the hope that Jesus Christ offers will help you through all of these emotions. Every single one of these 
this podcast doesn't necessarily have the answers, but Jesus Christ does. That's the truth. The gospel has the answers. Jesus has the answers. And so as you struggle with all of these, grief, depression, all of these, understand that Jesus Christ is there with you and he's readily available to talk to you. He won't get impatient with you if you are struggling with one for a tremendous amount of time. He is long-suffering, and he is patient, and he is absolutely ready and willing to do the work with you. And so that's our encouragement as we kind of wrap up this episode, is process through all of these emotions. Go, as as both my wife and my father and myself, as we are saying, go get that group of friends. Go find that group of friends that you can trust, you can confide in, and as much as possible, the the Christian worldview answers those questions far superior than any other religion and anything else out there. And that's one of the reasons why I'm a believer is it does have answers where, where nothing else does. So we hope that uh, the topics that we've talked about today are useful, offering a little bit more perspective to you guys Uh, But we will be back in the next episode. We're going to lighten things up in the next episode. Uh, What we want to do is we want to talk through all the signs that God was with us along the way. So we're going to talk about specific incidents uh, that happened during the, we're going to say first year, because it even goes beyond Stuart passing away. But that year, 12-month-long process where we have very specific examples. You don't always necessarily feel like God is with you, but there are certain points that you can absolutely point to and go, he was tangible, he was right there with me, and I felt his peace. Uh, So we kind of want to take what is a a very uh, sad and sobering topic, and we do want to spend at least an episode Uh, putting the positive spin on it now that we're so many years removed. And it's not even a spin, but it's definitely, um, you know, the the pieces that are missing. So uh, we will pick that up in episode number five. Uh, Deborah, thank you for joining us as well. My pleasure. And Dad, uh, definitely appreciate all the insight to all these emotions. Uh, But to everyone out there, thank you so much. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to Detours. For more content, you can find us on Spirit FM Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Play, or on our website at detours.life. To view my writings or to contact me for public speaking engagements, visit my website at debmarsalisi.com. Thank you.